All right, so today we're going to look at Exodus chapter 4. We're going to start with verse 14 and go to the end of the chapter, probably. Uh, we may not get clear to the end of the chapter because we've got some other business that I really want to do first, and it's hugely important in my mind. So let me see if I can get all my papers together. There's two handouts that I have back there. One of them looks very familiar, but I've got a few changes in it that are... It's not major in terms of word changes, but it's pretty major in terms of some other information. Uh, Dave Wernley talked to me the last time we had a Sunday school meeting. It was We were in church. He goes, I was talking about prep. He goes, have you ever heard of PatternsofEvidence.com? And I went, no. Well, it's a guy named Tim. Um, oh, I lost it. Uh, Mahoney is is the guy behind it, and he's a filmmaker. He does documentaries, and he's a believer, and he actually developed these movies over about a 20-year <coughs> time span, and they were actually in theaters for a while um, recently. But the thing I want to talk about is this as a resource. So look on the back of the one that has the map on it, Okay. <clears throat> and you will see up there Tim Mahoney Patterns of Evidence and I get, I've given you the, the website there they have videos you can purchase and I purchased there's five of them I purchased he's got another one or two this five was kind of a set that goes over the bulk of the Exodus and some very specific details about did the Exodus really happen when did it happen where was Mount Sinai, and some of those kinds of things. Uh, each of those videos, and some of the videos take two discs, and each disc is about two hours long. I've seen all but one of them now. If we'd have met last week, I would have been just telling you I'm going to look at them when I get a chance. Um, so you can, you can purchase those. Well, I got, when I went to the website and started seeing what was in there and what they were talking about, I was unwilling to wait so I go out to YouTube and start looking for things, and I found two videos that I watched <laughs> there. Maybe there's actually three that's down there. Yeah, I think that's the third one's in that same series. Um, and they're, I, they're under that title, Interesting Videos You Can Watch. Uh, and I've given you the website. Those, don't think you're gonna watch a 15 minute video. They're, they're long. Um, and these are what what these videos are is after Tim Mahoney did the work on <clears throat> on putting these videos together there is a group that's um, you know trying to spread the word in a good way and they invited Tim Mahoney and a guy named David Roll R-O-H-L to come in and they interviewed them but the real speaker for most of what I watched is David Roll and he goes through and explains that where archaeology coupled with historians have gone wrong in identifying the exodus and the archaeological evidence to support it. And it's real tempting to start spouting all the details. And I'm not going to do that this morning. Uh, I, I will tell you just a little bit, though. The basic time element is that they 
take Ramses, I believe the second, might be Ramses the third, and say that's the time of the Exodus because the town of Ramses is mentioned in the Bible, so they say, well, that it, but that's, that's just not right. Ramses was a later pharaoh that went in and actually um, made war with the tribes, the northern tribes, after the Israel and Judah had split. And that's, they got that right in the hieroglyphics in, in Egypt. You can see it. And so David Roll spends about an hour going through reconstructing <clears throat> who the right pharaoh is. And then later on in another setting, he also says, plus their Egyptian timeline's off a couple hundred years, and he provides information for when they think this Ramses was in the 1600 B.C. No, he was really in 1800 B.C. So there's some assumptions that happened and some real circular logic that caused everybody to say that there's no archaeological evidence for the Exodus. Um, just to give you a little snippet, one of the key things they look at is the destruction of Jericho. Well, if the Exodus happened when the historians and archaeologists said it would have had to have happened because of this connection with Ramses, and then you add 40 years because they wandered around 40 years, right? There hasn't been a Jericho at that time. Jericho was destroyed, destroyed 200 years earlier. And so there's no Jericho for the armies to march around. I want to read you a, a little thing out of the flap of this book. By the way, this is the guy, other guy they interviewed named David Roll. And I'll tell you a little bit about him in a minute. But this is out of the flap of this book that he wrote. He's written about five books. And uh, this is about Exodus, myth or history. That's his title. But let, I'm going to read two paragraphs out of this. Because <clears throat> this is where modern archaeology is. <clears throat> and even to be fair about it, this is where almost all of Christendom is. And Judaism. Listen to this. Since the turn of the century, there's been a growing awareness of the heated debate <laughs> raging with academia over the Old Testament, focusing on its value as a true or accurate record of Israelite history. The consensus among secular historians and archaeologists today is that the biblical narratives are essentially mythological, a pious fiction created by the Judean priesthood sometime between the 7th and 3rd centuries B.C., the reason why many scholars take this position is that the epic stories of the Old Testament have an almost complete lack of foundation in the archaeological record. After two centuries of concerted archaeological investigations, scholars have failed to produce any evidence for the stories of Joseph, Jacob, the Israelites in Egypt, no remains of a large population of Semitic slaves in Egypt's eastern delta, no mass exodus of those old Hebrew of those Hebrews out of Egypt led by a charismatic leader named Moses and no city destructions in Canaan to reflect the dramatic story of the conquest of the promised land by Joshua and the Israelite tribes and that's where archaeologists historians and most biblical scholars and most most evangelical people and leaders live <coughs> Now, John MacArthur wouldn't be there for the most part, but remember when we started the class, I said there isn't hardly any archaeological evidence, and we talked about why that might be. 
And so even John MacArthur is a little out of date with what, what, the, what David Roll has found and put together. And I really would encourage you, I mean, the only way to watch the videos is to buy them. Um, I've got them. I'm trying to figure out if I can show them in class. They're hard to package for our time frame. Each one's two hours long, and a couple of them have two videos. Well, now, could we do four weeks and cover those? Yeah, but it's, they don't have a nice, neat stopping point halfway through the video. and So I'm trying to figure out how to do that. So I'm not saying you need to rush out and buy them. You can listen to some of these uh, interviews that I, that I gave you on the back of this sheet, if you want to do that. Um, but the archaeological evidence, the issue is, David Roll would even agree with what they're looking at. There is absolutely no evidence because as you do archaeology, you're going down through the layers. And the layers correspond to time. So they're looking in the wrong time. They're looking 200 years too late, about, maybe 250 years. If you go back another 200 years, you find the largest city in the world at that time, probably, I mean, could you have an argument? Maybe, but it's at least one of the largest cities in the world was Goshen. And it was loaded with Semitic people. And I would even say from the photos he had in that, I am fully convinced they have found Joseph's own palace residence and the graves of the 12 brothers. And interestingly enough, if that's right, and I'm skipping massive amounts of details here. There's one grave that would clearly be Joseph's, and it's empty of bones. The other 11 have bones in them. I mean, the amount of evidence 200 years prior for the exodus in archaeology is absolutely, extremely overwhelming. And so um, I, would, I would go back to what I said in the start of the class, that there's not much archaeological evidence, and say, no, there's not much archaeological evidence if you misdate it 200 years late. But if you date it properly, based on the archaeological evidence, let alone scriptures, if you date it properly, you not only find archaeological evidence, but it also lines up with the dates that Jericho was destroyed. And then when you go look at the archaeology of Jericho, the manner in which it was destroyed lines up. I'm just, I'm just going there. So I've got some new information that I'm going to be bringing in what I can into class in our discussions. Right now, what's important? What have we gone by that I would like to, like to correct or change? And I've told you a lot of it. But go back to this sheet that says introduction that I handed out that first week. And I'm going to give John MacArthur. I kind of, I kind of said... You know, he's the one who told me, he was one of the ones that I looked at said, everybody says that I looked at. There's no archaeological evidence for it. And so that makes a little bit of a problem if you want to convince people outside the faith. But John MacArthur, his exodus date is not 200 years off. It's perfectly right on. And why is it right on? Because he started with the Bible. And the temple was built by Solomon a certain number of years after the Exodus. We know when Solomon built the temple so we can back up. And so John MacArthur was right on with his dating. 
because he didn't worry about what archaeology said. He worried about what the Bible said, which is the right approach if we're going to use the scriptures, right? <clears throat> so I, I noticed that those are good dates. And then I made that note at the bottom because I just didn't want that other sheet out. The, the underlying bold stuff are my changes. Uh, with the adjustment of the timeline, there's much archaeological evidence of Joseph, the Exodus, and the events seen in the Bible account. So this has got those updates. One of the things that I have a question to mark about, because I'm still trying to figure it out. So in the Bible, we use certain terms, but historians, all of these pharaohs have like three different names. They've got one in their diplomatic conversational language, if they're going country to country. They've got one in Egyptian. They often have one in Greek because the Greeks did a history of the Egyptians. And so figuring out which is the right name for a given pharaoh is a little tough. So I've got down there Tutmos the third. I don't know yet who to tell you. I know a name. Well, I don't know it because I don't remember it this morning. But I have what David Roll was talking about where he lined it up with a particular pharaoh. And it really lines up well. One of the interesting things that makes me thoroughly convinced he's got the pharaoh right is in Egyptian history. The pharaoh that, that David Roll lines up with being the, the pharaoh for the Exodus, right after that, the Hyksos come in and they take over Egypt. And according to Egyptian history, they do it without firing a shot. They didn't have guns. They do it without a conflict. Why? Where's the Egyptian army? Bottom of the Red Sea. There's no army to protect them, and the Hyksos come in and rain for a period of time, and rain brutally. And uh, even David Roll says that was the punishment of Egypt for enslaving the Semitics. Now, an interesting thing about David Roll, he's really the source done 30 years worth of research and his 30 years of research have convinced him the biblical account is absolutely, completely, thoroughly accurate. He's an agnostic. As a matter of fact, if some of you were in the right circles, you might recognize that name. Anybody here heard of David Roll in the rock and roll world? He was, in a, he was part of the rock and roll world in England. And as a child, he made a trip to Egypt. And he was part of a band. He was also a musical producer. But somewhere, I'm going to guess about 30, age 30, that was kind of winding down. He didn't know what to do. He remembered how cool Egypt was. So he went to two different universities. They're big name. I don't remember what they were now. And got two doctorates, as I recall, at least one, archaeology and history, or something like that. And so then he, well, I got to do something with this. And I loved Egypt. And so that's, that's where he wound up was studying this. And so he says, his own statement in the interview that I watched, the first one, was, you know, I'm an agnostic. This doesn't, do, this doesn't have anything to do with faith for me. This is just history. If it bolsters your faith, fine. I don't care. But it's not about faith for me. And... So I'm, I'm, I'm becoming a big David Roll fan, right? Well, when we get to the crossing of the Red Sea, I can't be a David Roll fan. 
I don't think he gets that one very right. And then I haven't heard much, but I've heard a couple of statements about how he handled the New Testament. He doesn't think there was a historical Jesus. So, <clears throat> I would quickly depart from David Roll on lots of topics. But on Exodus, and if you watch the videos, he isn't just talking words. He's got photos of the archaeology. And Joseph shows up everywhere. There's a canal in Egypt that's still named the waterway of Joseph that is about diminishing the floods of the Nile. And I'm going to quit there because I'm going to get off in all these details and we won't get any classwork done. Uh, so I'm going to be trying to bring this, not this so much, although I'm going to read this book and pass it on to somebody that's already asked for it. Um, but uh, I'm going to try to let this permeate what I do in class to the best of my ability. <clears throat> I will tell you that um, when I watched the first interview, um, YouTube on our TV at home, and Ruth said, well, I'm going to go to bed just a little bit. So I'll watch with you for 15 or 20 minutes. She watched the two hours. No, she didn't. She watched most of the two hours. This stuff is captivating. He is an excellent presenter as well as researcher. So you've got enough information here to go look at some of the things I looked at to get me started, the websites. And you might watch. There's a couple of them that move kind of slow. There's a couple of them he... He builds his foundation piece by piece by piece by piece. So to me, it was interesting details, but it's like, how are we going to get to Goshen? He's talking about how language has changed over time. But that's partly how he explains some of the errors that came up. Now, I want to go to the other side of this map, the one that has a map on color. <clears throat> because I told you and I've got a previous handout that <clears throat> um, about the location of Mount Sinai. If you look on this map in kind of the V between the Gulf of Suez and the Gulf of Aqaba, <coughs> you see one down there that says T-R-A-D Mount Sinai. That's trying to say that's the traditional location of Mount Sinai. Um, this is not David Roll stuff. Uh, David Roll I don't know which one of these he would pick. Probably pick the traditional Mount Sinai. Yeah, he does. That's right. But one of the things that Timothy Mahoney does, and it gets tedious a little bit watching the videos, he starts out saying, what are the possibilities? And he explores every one of them equally. He talks to people that have that view, people that are experts. There are people that express themselves well and they sound very believable and correct. And there are five potential places for the location of Mount Sinai that he explores. <coughs> and these are the five. And I will tell you, <clears throat> and there were some guys a few years ago, well, quite a few years ago now, 80s about, that went out and explored what's on here listed as Jabal al-Lawaz, al-Lawaz, I can't say that right. Jabal al-Laws, laws. I keep trying to do some of that W and it just, I can forget about it. I'm going to tell you that I'm fully convinced that's the real location of Mount Sinai. There were some guys back in the 80s that snuck into, snuck into Saudi Arabia. They went in illegally. 
Um, and others have done that too. Some of them were in prison for a while. Uh, you can't go into Saudi Arabia or couldn't. You might be able to now a little bit. Um, Timothy Mahoney does go in there with permission from the Saudis. He's got all the documents and everything, but when he gets to this location, there is a fence built around it, and the reception was somewhat hostile. They don't want people in there. The, the, uh, the fellows that did a clandestine operation, um, they did some things that made people think maybe they were a little bit fly by night. They probably were a little bit fly by night. But it looks like they, their information was pretty accurately presented to the world, even though they were, the way they went at it didn't build their credibility. But others have gone in, and the credibility, in my opinion, is pretty high, particularly with what Timothy Mahoney did. Uh, and so I'm, early, I told you the traditional Mount Sinai is in the Sinai Peninsula. Well, this location for Mount Sinai and the Sinai Peninsula, they weren't even called Sinai until about 300 AD or something like that. Maybe even a little later than that. And that was by a um, female, I don't remember what her title was. But yeah, there's a woman that decided, she became a Christian, she was in the government. Uh, Constantine, it might have, been, might have been Constantine's wife, I don't remember. But she decided she's gonna go explore all this and she started labeling things and whatever. And if you go into the Arab people, a lot of the Bedouins and so on, if you ask them where Mount Sinai is, it's always something close to where they are. Because <clears throat> that's a pride point. Well, anyhow, she's the one that named that the Sinai Peninsula and decided that was where Mount Sinai was, according to the information that Tim Mahoney presents. So anyway, if you want to just go crazy with this, which I did, you, you, can, you can pursue all of this you want. And I will try to do what I can to let some of those things that I'm very confident in into the class. There's one video on the archaeology surrounding Goshen that I'm pretty determined to get in class, but I haven't figured it out yet. So be patient with me. We'll, we'll get there. Questions, comments? Well, I used up half our time. I planned on 10 minutes. So it will probably affect how far we get today. Um, but let's go over to Exodus. And let's go back to where, where we were. Um, and remind ourselves where we're at in this, this account. Um, okay, went through all that. So we last left Moses in an interaction with God surrounding the burning bush on where? Mount Sinai. It, it matters where Mount Sinai is because part of the information God gave to Moses was you'll know that one of the signs to you will be that you will bring the people of Israel back here and worship on this same mountain. And so Mount Sinai does become important. <clears throat> it's holy ground. Moses has this interaction with God when God makes it clear, I'm sending you to the people, I want you to bring them out. And he gave him some signs that he could do, and he also gave him a name to say, this is who sent you, I am that I am. And uh, 
So gather the people, tell them, I am concerned for them, says God. I see your plight. I will bring you out of Egypt to Canaan, to a land of milk and honey. And God even tells Moses, they're going to listen to you. And then tell the king of Egypt that you've met with the God of the Hebrews. Uh, and uh, we want to go out three days journey into the desert to worship that God. And uh, Pharaoh will decline. He's not going to let you go. I already will tell you that. But I'll give you favor with the Egyptians. And your people will ultimately leave with great plunder. And so you're going to plunder the land of Egypt, which sets up the opportunity for the Hyksos to come in. God, Moses still says, well, what if they don't believe me now? So he gives them the signs, the rod that turns into a serpent, the hand that becomes leprous, leprous, and then he tells him of a third one that if you pour water out of the Nile on the ground, it will turn to blood. So Moses isn't done telling God why he can't or won't. Lord, I can't speak well. And God has a good answer to that. Who made your mouth? I'll be with your mouth and teach you what to say. And Moses winds up what we talked about last time in verse 13 with just this not reasoned in, but he just ends it with, Lord, send who you want. In other words, send somebody else. It's not going to be my job. And so I want to pick up today with chapter 4 of Exodus. And let's read verses 14 through 23. Who can read that for us? So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well, and look, he is also coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Now you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with your mouth, and I will teach you what I shall do. So he said he shall be your spokesman to the people, and he himself shall be as a mouth for you, and you shall be to him as God, and you shall take his rod in your hand with which you shall, which you shall do the signs. So Moses went and returned to Jer Jethro and his father-in-law and said to him, Please let me go and return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see whether they will still are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Dead, go return to Egypt, for all the men are dead who sought your life. Then Moses took his wife and his sons and set them on a donkey, and he returned to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the rod of God in his hand. Okay. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Go Keep going. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hands. But I will harden his heart so... Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, My son, go to go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. Okay. So what's God's response to Moses at the end there of verse 13, still saying, Please, Lord, send the message by whoever you want, meaning not me. How did, how did God respond to that in verse 14? Anger. Anger. The anger of the Lord burned against Moses. This is not a minor reaction. It isn't impatience. God was upset. He was angry. And this is what he said. And I'm sure he said it in a way Moses knew 
the discussion's really over. I don't know, I wasn't there, but with God being angry, you can bet that that anger was communicated to Moses. You know, before we're done with this chapter, keep remembering who's writing this. Moses. And it's going to be interesting, some of the things that he writes. But let's, let's keep talking about this. And so uh, he says uh, um, that, uh, don't you have your brother Aaron the Levite? I know that he speaks fluently. He speaks well. Moreover, behold, he is coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. So he brings up his brother Aaron. Now, now what was the rule about baby boys born in, in Egypt to the Jews? So, how do we get a brother Aaron? Now, I bring that up only because that question popped into my mind, and it's really quite simple. Aaron was older than Moses, so he probably was born before that particular edict came out. He was probably one of those babies that were born, according to the midwives, so fast we can't get there in time to do anything about it. But anyway, he's got an older brother, Aaron, who was in the household, and God says, let's use Aaron and he speaks well and by the way he's coming out to see you and he's going to be glad by the way Aaron's mentioned in Exodus 7 7 so we know it's there and then in verse 15 God says when you meet Aaron tell him what to say and I will be with both of your mouths I will teach you what you are to do and Aaron will speak for you in verse 16 and so take in your hand the staff so that you can perform the signs I've shown you. And so in verse 18, Moses is done arguing with God. I think he figured out this is not an argument that I should be having that I could possibly win. And so he leaves. He goes to Jethro, his father-in-law. And what does he tell Jethro? What does he want to do? Please let me go. Okay. Why? And return to my brethren. Why? See if they're still alive. See if they're still alive. Now, does Moses have a pretty good idea they're still alive? Yeah. I mean, he's just been told you're going to go rescue them. When he left Egypt, there was certainly a large number of them even then. Uh, so Moses did leave, and uh, he goes back to toward Egypt. Now, God tells him, now go, get on your way. And he gives him another piece of information. And what is that? About his safety. God gives Moses some information here. Says everybody that was trying to kill you is gone. Yeah, they're dead. And so that also tells us we've got a new Pharaoh because it was Pharaoh that wanted to kill Moses. And, and he was the one leading that charge. So he's on his way back. He took his wife and his sons, put them on a donkey, and returned toward Egypt. And, of course, he did well. He didn't forget to take that staff with him that God told him to take. So in verse 21, the Lord says to Moses, Now when you see Pharaoh, be sure to do all the wonders that I put in your power. In other words, show him that you're here with the power of God. And But God goes on to say, But I'm going to harden his heart so he will not let the people go. Now we've got to talk about that a little bit. What does it mean to harden his heart? You ever thought about that? 
stubborn. He didn't understand what he was doing. Well, okay, there's some stubborn. I don't know that I want to say he didn't understand. I don't know how that might fit, but there certainly was some stubbornness, and he was going to be stubborn toward what? command of God, letting the people go. It's not going to be something he wants to do. Um, and when we talk about hardening the heart, I mean, if you were to say about somebody, that person has a hard heart, what would you mean by that? No compassion. Lacking of compassion. That's their own opinion and not open to outside things that might be true. They're confident of the direction they're going to take. A person can even have a hard heart when they know they're going in a direction that would not be considered ethical or correct, right? A person can get a hard heart about committing some crime. You know, it's the only way out. I've got to do this. And there's all kinds of things people get hard hearts about when God says he's going to harden his heart it can mean that he will make him uncompassionate and unwilling to consider other things and I think that's even almost a given as being true does it necessarily mean that God put an evil stubbornness in his heart and of course we're going to have to say no uh, when we look over in James it even talks about you know God doesn't bring evil to anyone but your evil comes out of your own heart and so when we look at this God is saying I'm going to harden his heart he's not going to be open to letting the people go he's going to be closed off he's going to be shut down but you could also say that the source of his determination to keep the people was already in his heart we know for sure that it was in the predecessor's heart. Why? Because the Pharaoh before him said, we got all these Israelites here. we got to figure out how to manage them. Or they're going to grow strong and they could side with an enemy against us. And then they wouldn't be here to be our slaves. And so his predecessor was definitely had in his heart to keep them. To the point, I mean, this is pretty hard. To the point... We expect the Israelites to let their baby boys be killed as they're born. That's pretty hard. That's not a person who is interested in anything to do with the good or the uh, feelings of anybody else, is it? And we could keep on with that and also bring one interesting fact to us. Um, and that is, maybe I had that, no, no, here's, there's a balance in the book of Exodus. And I find this interesting. The wording in the book, and we're not going to look at all, all 10 of, all 20 of these. There are 20 times in the book of Exodus where it says 10 times that God hardened Pharaoh's heart and 10 times where it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So he's not being pushed in a direction he's not willing to go on his own. And so it's not like something unfair. Well, why would we say, well, this might not have been fair to Pharaoh? Go over to Romans chapter 9. And we're going to read verses 10 through 20. Romans 9, 
And if you've ever studied Romans or um, I know we've talked about this every time I've done I've done Romans more than once in here. Uh, Romans 9 is a interesting chapter to work your way through regarding the sovereignty of God. And Pharaoh is one of the examples of that. So let's begin in Romans 9 with verse 10 and read through verse 20. So who can I ask and will do that for us? And not only this, but when Rebecca also had conceived by one man, even by our even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the person that that the person of God according to election might stand, not of the works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, The older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy on, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, even for the same purpose I have raised you up, I might show my power in you, and that my name might be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. You will say to them, why does he still find fault? For, for who has resisted his will? But indeed, O oh man, who are you to rely against God? Will the thing formed say, will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Okay, and obviously there's a lot of good context coming into that passage and a lot more that we could keep reading. But um, I, I selected this focus just to bring the issues out. And when we start in verse 10, in this passage, God says through Paul that looking at the Old Testament, that God said, I choose Jacob to rule over Esau. Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated, not because of anything they had done or would do, but so that my purposes may be fulfilled. So God firmly establishes through what Paul wrote here and other places in the scriptures, but this is one of the strongest statements about his own sovereignty about how he's going to deal with people. And his purposes are going to be met and God's going to see that that occurs. And then that brings up an issue. Well, then how can you condemn Esau if you decided before he was born that you would choose to love Jacob and not Esau, that Jacob, though he was second born, would rule over Esau. And so anticipating that question, Paul writes it down. What shall we say then? There's no injustice in God, is there? That's the very question. How can you say that's, we would say, fair? How can you say that's just? But, God, but Paul says, no, may it never be. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And it shows that God is in a sovereign role with regard to who he shows mercy to and compassion. 
And this is how it works out. So then in verse 16, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? If he's the one doing the hardening, in other words. For who can resist his will? On the contrary, who are you, a man who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? And that can create a real hard spot for a lot of us. Is that easy to hear and understand? Can I explain to you how that all works? And what basis God does his choosing? No. Scriptures never tell us why. But I can bring you two things that I think we ought to put into our understanding of God and his sovereignty. And the first one is, out of ourselves, which one of us would have chosen to follow God? <coughs> now you might think, well, I've been soft. I would follow God. No, I'm going to tell you you wouldn't have. And I can tell you that with certainty because of what we read elsewhere in Romans about how sin entered through Adam and through Adam we inherited a sinful nature. When we come into the kingdom of God, it's by the grace and mercy of God. It's Him taking the action, not us. We didn't earn the salvation God granted it to us out of his mercy and grace. So how can we find fault with God for choosing? The best time I've heard Romans 9 preached was by R.C. Sproul at one of the early shepherds conferences I went to. And one of the things he said there is we not, ought not be surprised that God doesn't <clears throat> choose everyone. Because if it were you and me, isn't that what we'd want to do? What we ought to be surprised is that God chose anyone. There is no one worthy. No, not one, says the scriptures. The scriptures also say not that we loved him, but that he loved us. And this, these things are hard to deal with. I have an unbelieving son. I can read this passage, and if, if I were to let it, I could get upset over it. Now, I don't know that that's a lifetime sentence for him, an eternal sentence for him. I don't know where God's going to go with that. And it really caused my wife and I to really change what faith in God meant with regard to the son to say, I can trust God with my unbelieving son. That's not real easy to do when all of the evidence in his growing up looked like he was a believer at the time. I should, maybe shouldn't say, oh, no kid's that good. But it certainly looked that way. And so we ought not be too quick to start casting our barbs at God when God made it clear. I'm the potter, you're the clay. I'm choosing to make many of you such that you'll be my sons. But not all of you. And so... This, this, this is a hard thing for many people to look at God hardening Pharaoh's heart. And I'm not going to be able to give you an explanation that ties up all the loose ends. That's part of the tension of the scriptures. Which John MacArthur would say is evident, evidence that the scriptures are inspired. 
Because what man sitting around making up some sort of religion would leave this kind of a thing in it? You know, you'd explain that. You'd figure it out. You'd find some way to make it to where, well, it's okay. I get it now. You know, God's really very, very fair. And that's why a lot of people reject the sovereignty of God in the role of salvation. And I want to be very clear. There may be some people here today who, when they hear this, go, I can't get my brain around that. I can't. It can't be that God did all the choosing. There are many saved believers that think they chose God. And I'm not questioning their salvation. This isn't what saves you. What saves you is God choosing you and you accepting that in the faith that he gives you to trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross to pay your sin debt. That's what saves you, not whether or not you grasp or fully endorse what's written here. Um, I've had multiple people, some have moved away, that one of the better examples was a lady that, I can't, I can't accept that. We were teaching through Romans, chapter 9. And it was a crisis for them on whether or not they were going to be able to stay with our church. I said, well, you don't have to believe this to be saved. I said, really? So we talked through that. I said, but, you know, this is what the Word says, and I would just encourage you to keep listening and let the Word... Ten years, maybe later, she was like, man, that worked out. I, I get it now. And, and embraced it because, frankly, who can you trust to make the decision about who's going to be saved if it's not God? What are the attributes of God? He's righteous. He's holy. He's loving, without error, all-knowing. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Who's more qualified to say, I'm calling that guy in my kingdom, I'm calling that lady in my kingdom, I'm saving the, who's more qualified? Look around at our governments and so on right now. Would you want mankind trying to figure this out? They can't figure out how to balance a budget. <laughs> they, uh, we, I shouldn't say they, we. We can't figure out how to quit doing stupid things with our public policy. I mean, we do. We just do the craziest things and wonder why we have troubles later on. So, anyway, questions or comments? I preached that <coughs> to the best of my ability for a short time I gave myself. Rick, I've heard it said that the saving sunlight that hardens the clay softens the wax. There you go, yep. And so it's not about, it's not about the, the presence of God or the edict of God, but about the, the person who's being called Yep. Yep. That's actually right. Absolutely right. Good. Good way. Good analogy. Any anybody else? Okay. Well, I hope I didn't overdo that. But 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 we but we need to but we need to recognize when it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. I mean, it'd be easy to say, well, yeah, he probably hardened Hitler's heart too. And we can think all the evil evil people and but. But behind it is, is this issue. Um, so God goes on in verse 20, 22 and says, By the way, tell Pharaoh that Israel is my son, my firstborn. Who's Israel? That's not hard. Jacob? So 
Um, and so part of the message to Pharaoh is that this is God's family. These aren't just people who worship God. God is saying, this is my family. So I said to you, let my son go that he may serve me, but you refused. Behold, God says in verse 23, what he's telling Moses to say, pay attention, surely, that's what behold means, I will kill your son, your firstborn. So we get a clear picture here of where God is going with how he's going to deal with Pharaoh and the plagues that he's going to bring upon him in order to see his own son released. You don't let my son go, your son dies. That's God's declaration through Moses to Pharaoh in the message that God tells him to say. All right. Let's see here. Let's do verses 24 through 26. I'll read them for you. Now it came about at the lodging place on the way that the Lord met him. Who's him here? Moses. And sought to put him to death. Then Sipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and threw it at Moses' feet and said, You are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me, so let him alone. At that time she said, You are a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Now, how many times did you hear that as a kid growing up? <laughs> Moses was on his way with his family to Egypt. They stop and camp the lodging place. And the Lord met him there. Why did God meet Moses there? What was he going to do? What's that? God said, I'm, God didn't say, God was there to kill Moses. We don't know what God's presence was like. We don't know how Moses and Zipporah figured it out, that God's here to put him to death. Maybe God came and said, you're dead, Moses. And it just doesn't fit the story, does it? Send him over, he tells him what to do, tells him you're going to meet Aaron, tells him what to say, tells him what Pharaoh's going to do. But on the way, he stops and, Moses, you're going to die right here, right now. And from the actions, we can figure out what it was. What was Zipporah's response? She said, well, and actually there were two of them. There's some plurality probably here that doesn't carry through into the English very well. But she circumcised the two boys, threw the foreskins at Moses, and said, you're a bridegroom of blood to me. And then says, so leave him alone, meaning leave Moses alone. Why was God going to kill Moses based on the context we read here in this story? So, Israel is God's firstborn son, right? Which means all his descendants are God's family. What was the mark of the family? Maybe I should say it this way. What was the mark of the covenant between Abraham and God? And Abraham then is the patriarch of this family that God is going to, going to uh, release from Egypt and make into a nation. What's the mark? 
it really shows Moses' lack of connection. He goes to Midian, right? Who are the Midianites? Do you remember? What's that? One of Abraham's later wives, I think. Yes. Um, I was going to say it a minute ago, and now you jinxed me. Um, Keturah was Abraham's wife after Sarah. As a matter of fact, when we read Genesis and taught it in here, we mentioned sometimes she's called a wife and sometimes she's called a concubine. And I don't think it meant concubine like we might sometimes think. It's very clear that the wife to bear the child of the promise was Sarah. So after Sarah dies, Abraham has a second family. He lives a long time after that, another 50 years, I believe. Working from memory is probably wrong. But he lives a lot more years, has a second family with Keturah. And he tells the children of Keturah, he doesn't say, don't go settle with the Israelites, the children of the promise, but he says, settle to the east. And so they wind up, if you look at the map I handed out today, they wind up, most people would believe, we could start an argument about this too, it's in some of these videos, but they basically wind up east of the Gulf of Aqaba. One of those children's name was Midia, and the, or Midian, and the Midianites are his descendants. So Moses has been living with descendants of the Midianites. Now, they're not children of the promise. But clearly, Zipporah, Moses' wife, knew enough about the sign of the being a child, being a Jew, a child of the covenant, circumcision was a part of it. Very good chance many think that the Midianites practiced circumcision too because Abraham's our father and Abraham, everybody in Abraham's household was circumcised. So very good chance that was still continuing. But Moses with his own family hadn't seen fit to exercise that part of the covenant. And God's there to say, by the way, you're either in my covenant or out, and if you're out, you're dead. And if you're in, how do you behave? How do you, what's the sign of the covenant? And so God was there expecting Moses should have already circumcised his boys, but Zipporah takes care of it, and she doesn't appear to be very happy about being the one left with the task, does she? <coughs> You're, you, you, you've put blood on my hands as my husband. You've, you've introduced a bloody situation into our family. Uh, but she goes ahead and is a pretty good wife to, Abe, to Moses from then on, as far as we can tell. There's some other issues that come up. but um, Anyway, um, they're going to continue, but, but this is what happens here. Questions, comments? Is it literal death or is it separation? No, he's going to kill you. Yeah, this is, this is literal death. There's no question here that if... Did God know this was going to happen? <laughs> yes. But God was there with a message, if you're not going to do this, you're going to die. And Zipporah didn't wait uh, on Moses to see what he was going to do. Maybe she knew he had a tendency to try to not, not, not do everything immediately. I don't know. He's taken his family to Egypt to proclaim the message covenant of Abraham to the Egyptian Pharaoh and if you were to do that without his kids being circumcised like 
if how hypocrit how hypocritical is that? You know, yeah. he's there as a representative of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and yet he's not following the the requirements of the covenant that it's really it's really yeah it, it's kind of duh but at the same time when when we we look at what's going on here with Moses I mean I even wonder if you know in that previous passage God out of his anger told Moses how it was going to be he's probably still got a little bit of that in what's happening right here still angry with Moses Moses can you start getting in the game you're 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 out here just kind of doing the minimums that's not the leader I'm looking for you're going to need to be out here playing it from the heart and so Moses get your heart lined up questions comments all right I kept you a few minutes after um, we'll we'll pick it up next week with verse 27.